Good morning. Come on now, we can do better than that. Good morning. We've had church in here today and it has been good. Grab your Bibles, go with me to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, uh, as you're making their, your way there now, let me just uh, uh, put this on your radar. Easter is only six weeks away. Can you believe it? We are in that far into 2023. We're talking about Easter, six weeks out. And uh, I want to tell you what our Easter schedule is so you can start planning your weekend accordingly. Of course, we will have our Good Friday Easter service uh, on Good Friday at 6 o'clock. And want to encourage all of you to make plans to join us for that. And then for our Easter worship celebrations, we're going to have five services here at the North Campus. And so we're going to have two on Saturday night, five and 6.30, and then our regular rhythm on Sunday morning of 8.30, 10, uh, 10, and 11.30. And so please make plans to join us. And if you call Prestonwood Church your home, here's my request of you. Attend one and serve one. Please prayerfully consider attending a service and serving another service because there is no way for us to accommodate all of the guests that God is bringing to our church if we don't have your help uh, to do so. And so five services, you'll have every opportunity throughout that weekend to worship with us, two on Saturday night, three on Sunday morning. Please uh, consider attending one and serving another to help us make Easter such an incredible success here at Prestonwood. And as a part of your spiritual preparation, I want to draw your attention to an Easter devotional that was created out of the heart of this church. In fact, from within our worship ministry, our own Ben Watts was kind of the brainchild behind this Easter devotional. And so grateful for Ben and his leadership. Our staff has contributed to this. And this will be a great opportunity. It's a six weeks devotional that will lead you up until the celebration on Easter resurrection morning. And these are available in the lobby for $10. And this would be a great daily devotional for you to do in preparation for our Easter celebration. So make sure you grab your copy of the devotions that are available today right out in the middle of the lobby. You are going to want to take advantage of that. As you could tell from that sermon bumper just a moment ago, we are back in our sermon series entitled Tell Me the Story of Jesus. We are navigating much in the way of the life and ministry of Jesus. We've talked about everything from Jesus' character to some of the great conversations. We talk about uh, some of the uh, counsel that Jesus gives, some of the wise counsel, and some of the confrontations that Jesus has. And today, our subject of study is going to cause us to pay attention to what I believe is the most pronounced character trait of Christ. But I would argue often the most misunderstood or at least misapplied within the culture at large today. And I am talking about the love of Jesus or how we would articulate love based upon the life and ministry of Jesus. And love is the way in which Jesus is described to us about him from our earliest of age. Do you remember, any of you who might have grown up in the church, do you remember ever hearing and singing the song, Jesus Loves Me? Anybody? Yeah, a few of you. Uh, so it's, it's Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak, but he's so strong, right? Yes, Jesus loves me, for the Bible tells me so. Some of you now have that song stuck in your head. You're welcome, all right? We know that this is how Jesus is described for us most often, even from our earliest age. But it's truly the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that shows us 
what the love of Jesus truly entails. And here's what I mean. Jesus died for us because Jesus loved us. In fact, it's the love of Jesus that motivated him to want to provide for us something we could never provide for ourselves. Just think with me about some of the most popular passages in the New Testament. John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. You know this verse. For God so, what? Loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Well, that entirety of the work of Jesus is rooted in the love of Christ. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, when Paul is explaining to the church what the love of God looks like, he says, but God demonstrates his what? Love. Oh, four of you can read. I'm so sorry. But God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, it is in the moment when we were most undeserving that God extends to us his grace evidenced for us in his love. And so I would just say this to you this morning. If you take nothing else away from this sermon, then please hear this. Jesus loves you. If you hear nothing else that I'm going to say to you today, then please write this down. Jesus loves you. Every single one of us. He loves us. And the gospel is the great demonstration of that love. Turn to your neighbor and say, Jesus loves you. Some of you are like, I'm not so sure. Yes, okay. <laughs> Everyone. He loves Everyone. Now, anytime we're studying the Bible, I always want to remind you that context matters. We would agree that context matters in all of life. How many of you have been able to see the Jesus Revolution movie recently? It's a really good film. It's a wholesome film. It's a family film. So I would encourage all of you, if you're able, uh, maybe even over spring break this week or next, uh, take your family, go see the Jesus Revolution. It's a great film. If you chose to only watch one scene in that movie, you might leave the theater and say, well, that's a film about drug use. But that would be taking that story out of context because you only watched one scene of the entirety of the film. The film is about uh, God rescuing and redeeming and saving and changing and renewing and beginning a revival by anybody, anywhere, even those who have maybe used drugs. And so that's the purpose of the film. But context matters for us to be a people who understand meaning in light of the whole. Our verses of concentration in John chapter 13 are verses 34 and 35. And it's important for us to pay attention to the instruction that Jesus gives here, but understanding it within the wider context by which it is given. Now, here's the scene in John chapter 13 that we're about to read in, in 34 and 35. This is an upper room discourse. So you know that just in the last few hours before Jesus is illegally arrested and unjustly tried and then uh, uh, undeservedly murdered, that just before that takes place, Jesus has gathered with his disciples in this upper room in Jerusalem and they're celebrating the Passover together. And Jesus has an opportunity with this uh, select audience to be able to teach and instruct in just a few last things of great importance. In fact, that's where he instituted the Lord's Supper, which is a celebration and an ordinance of the church that we still actively participate in uh, today. And in this upper room dinner dialogue, Jesus chose with this captive audience to talk about the subject of love. 
Now, I think it's important for us to pay attention to that. Knowing that this would be the last time that Jesus would have these brothers and sisters together in this moment without any outside uh, influence and out, without any external conflict or, or chaos, which was definitely about to ensue. In this quiet conversation that Jesus has with these brothers and sisters that he has been doing life with for the last several years, Jesus chose to talk to them about love. And if that's the significance of a big conversation in that moment then, then it ought to signal that the subject of that conversation should be something we pay attention to now. Because that's the way it is anytime you, you can have big conversations in big moments. See, Jesus is the only one in that upper room who knows what is about to come. And yet Jesus, who's the one that's directing the dialogue in that moment, knowing what was before him, chose to have a conversation with them about the importance of love. Every now and then, you're in the middle of one of those major moments in life, and, and the gravity and the significance of that moment are able to register and we're able to have a significant conversation right in the middle of it. You know what I'm talking about? A few months ago, um, uh, there was a, a dear family in our church that's part of our Plano campus and a, a young mom had, had battled uh, cancer for seven years and she was just at the end of her fight. And, uh, and, and so they called in hospice and I was able to go over and to spend some time with them uh, at the hospital and she has two teenage daughters with her husband standing at her side I'm able to be there to minister and to pray and uh, and she calls her daughters into the bed and she still has uh, en enough awareness and she has enough clarity of thought and she clearly recognizes the gravity of the moment and do you know she chose in that moment to tell her girls her teenage girls don't be mad at God because what we believe with all of our heart is that God is good even if this is really bad and so, girls, my encouragement to you as your mom who loves Jesus is that I still do too. What a powerful moment to be able to recognize the significance of what it is that is going on and be able to speak such powerful truth right smack dab in the middle of it. That's what Jesus is doing. He recognizes the gravity of the moment. He recognizes he's the only one who knows what it was that was to come. And Jesus chose in that moment to talk about the significance of love. And so I want us to read together and we're going to first talk about the subject of love and the teaching that Jesus gives on the necessity of it. And then we're going to back up the story just a little bit so that we can appreciate the greater, the wider context in which it is that he gives it. So let's start in John chapter 13 and let's read verses 34 and 35. John chapter 13, starting with me in verse 34. If you're there, say, I got it. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another. If you mark or highlight in your Bibles, I'm going to have you underline that phrase, love one another, each time you see it in these two verses. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, now when he says by this, he means by this love for one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Again, I think it's so significant. I want to encourage all of you to underline or mark that love for one another in your Bible because Jesus says that it is our love for one another that will be an indicator that will serve as the evidence that we belong to him. Now, church family, this is something huge because Jesus is having a very intimate conversation, a very quiet and calm dialogue before the chaos of his arrest and trial and ultimately his murder is about to ensue. And in this moment, Jesus looks around with these brothers and sisters, these disciples of his. 
And he says, the world's going to know you belong to me based on how you treat one another, based on how you show love for one another. I'm going to share with you three things that I think are significant here before we back up and appreciate the wider context in which Jesus says. So first thing I would say is this, the world will not know we belong to Christ as much by what we hate as they will by how we love. That is just an important reality for us to see here. Jesus could have said in this moment, and all will know that you belong to me based on how angry you can be at everything else. But that's not what he said. He said, all will know that you belong to me based on your love for one another. Some of us are so good at defining and communicating our dislike for others and not nearly as good at showing our love to them. And Jesus says it's a marker, it's an indicator that we belong to him. The second thing I would point out is this. Our religious deeds, things like our church attendance, our mission trips, our church camps, they don't reveal our commitment to Christ in any significant way compared to how our love for others does. So again, those are good things. We're not going to demonize those things. But in comparison to our love for others, they don't signal what we think they do in regards to what we believe and to whom we belong. That's what Paul means in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you've been to any wedding ever, you've heard the love chapter. And Paul says that one of the things about love is that if we think that what we're doing, our best religious effort is somehow playing heaven's music, then we haven't been listening. Because in reality, absent of love, all we're doing is making a bunch of noise. You with me? We think sometimes, well, what we're doing and the things we're doing for God and the things we're doing at church might be making this beautiful music in heaven. But absent of love, all it's doing is making a bunch of noise. And the third thing I would just say is this. The love that Jesus says identifies those who belong to him is a love for one another. That's the reason why I had you highlight that. And what breaks my heart is that this is where I see the church fail over and over and over again. And when I say the church, we're talking about the big C. Okay, I'm, I'm, this is not an indictment on the North Campus of Prestonwood Baptist Church. I'm talking about the big C. I'm talking about brothers and sisters who profess Christ. Let me, let me just give you an example. Um, did you realize that social media actually rewards and monetizes? The algorithms are built upon our willingness to talk more about people than our willingness to talk to them. And so even within the church, and I'm talking about the body, the big body of Christ, there are people who profess Christ publicly in this arena, but who demonize others who belong to Christ in that arena. That we vilify. We don't speak to people, we speak about them. And, and the only one who wins when that takes place is the enemy who seeks to divide God's church. And Jesus says that the evidence that you belong to me is how you show love to one another. So that's the critically important teaching from Jesus on the necessity of our showing love to one another. But I, I want to see now and, and show you how Jesus then models that within the wider uh, context by which he discusses it. So back up with me to the beginning of John chapter 13. And let's read the first five verses so that we can appreciate the context in which this teaching on love takes place. John chapter 13, now pick it up with me in verse number one. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. 
During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and that he was going back uh, to God. So here's what the writer is saying. Jesus is the only one at dinner who knows what's going on. Everybody else is just having supper, paying attention to what it is that Jesus is about to say. You with me? And, and then here's what Jesus does in verse 4. He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Okay, a few things we ought to pay attention to. The first is this. This was not a glamorous task. Okay? Jesus didn't do this for the gram. He was not trying to initiate likes. He wasn't trying to raise money for his mission, right? No one saw this. This is in the quiet, calm, intimate setting of that upper room moment. The only people who knew about this were the ones whom Jesus was serving by doing it. It's significant. What Jesus is modeling in this moment is this. I'm lowering myself so that I can elevate others instead. It's the reason why sometimes you'll see at a wedding ceremony, a couple uh, may choose as a part of their ceremony to have a ceremonial foot washing. And, and that's a good and right thing uh, uh, sometimes to be included because every uh, married couple knows the only way for a marriage to be healthy and to flourish and to thrive. In other words, to live in a way that is good for one another and glorifies God. Because you're going to have a sinner marrying a sinner and saying, I do, sinning against one another for the rest of your life. The only way for that to take place is when a couple is willing to sacrifice themselves for the ability to be able to serve their significant other. That's the only way for any kind of health and flourishing and success. And Jesus models that in this moment, in this upper room uh, action of foot washing. And, and this was a dirty task. I mean, we all know they wore open-toed shoes, and, and this was filthy. And, and Jesus was willing to take on that filth. He was willing to, to sacrifice in that particular way for a purpose of showing us what it looks like to give of himself for the good of someone else. Jump down with me because Jesus begins to explain what it is that's going on. Pick it up in verse 12. And when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. But if then your Lord and your teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example. If you mark or highlight in your Bibles, underline that word example. That you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus sets the example for us to follow of love in action. And so if you're a note taker, I want to encourage you to write this down. To love like Jesus is to exercise servant leadership. Again, what's the wider context? John 13, 34, and 35. People are going to know you're my disciples by how you have love for one another. How does he model love for one another? John 13, 1 through 12, right here. By sacrificially serving others. Servant leadership is the way in which we can exercise love, the love of Christ. In fact, I would say this in speaking about servant leadership. I actually don't believe there is any other type that is healthy. I don't believe there's any other 
kind, that is healthy, other than servant leadership. And so here's two thoughts on servant leadership I'll share with you today. The first is this. This is one you've heard many times, probably spoken in many venues, but it's true. If serving is beneath you, then leadership is above you. If serving is beneath you. Now think about this. What did Jesus do according to Philippians chapter 2? Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That word grasping means to be held on to. But he humbled himself, taking the form of a servant and becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, right? This is what Jesus modeled for us. And so Jesus, um, who deserved to have his feet washed, is the one who humbled himself to wash the feet of someone else. If serving is beneath you, then leadership is above you. I'll tell you one of the ways in which God grew me in this is that um, he sent me to East Texas to serve at a very fast-growing church for seven years, and we never had enough resources to keep up with our growth, ever. We never had enough resources. We were constantly having to re-engineer the ways in which ministry and ministry programming and facilities could be used and reused uh, over and over and over again because God was entrusting us with a great deal of growth and we were just never able to keep a resource, our resources able to keep up with it. And so I tell interns here at Prestonwood all the time, if you have never set up chairs for the meeting you're about to lead, then you're missing something significant that God does through servant leadership. And so if everybody in this room has some measure of leadership in your home, in your community, in your business, in your family, and if serving is beneath you, then leadership is above you. Here's the second thing I'll point out about servant leadership. When it comes to your servant leadership, check your motive. When it comes to your servant leadership, check your motive. In other words, make sure your desire is truly rooted in God's love and not our own glory or our obligation or our desired outcome instead. I read a great quote this week. I love this. I'll share it with you. Harry Ironside said this, when washing others' feet, be careful of the temperature of the water. That's just good. Because we can all be tempted to want to serve others, right? Exercise servant leadership, but with a bad motive in our doing so, right? I'll give you an example. Uh, sometimes, not often, but sometimes when Mary and I ask the kids, hey, would y'all get all the trash picked up and empty all the trash cans, put fresh bags and sacks in all the trash cans, then get them to the big cans because we need to take the cans down to the curb. Every now and then, not often, but every now and then, my kids will respond to that, okay, in a couple of ways. One, sometimes they'll be like, <sighs> you know what I'm talking about? So like they go and grab the plastic sack from the, uh, uh, underneath the sink and they're about to reload the kitchen uh, trash can and they'll be like popping that sack out. <laughs> Just popping the sack. <sighs> oh, we're the only one raising sinners? That doesn't happen in y'all's house? That's fine. Or other times, especially my little, man, my little will sometimes be like, Mom, I got all the trashes upstairs. Now I'm just going to go get your bedroom. Mom, I got all the trashes in your bathroom. Now I'm just going to go to the girls' room. Mom, I got the trashes in the girls' room. All she wants is somebody to say, great job. Right? So do we. So when we're serving others, okay, exercising servant leadership, we need to be mindful that we check our motive right? That the temperature of the water we're washing isn't too hot or too cold, right? What's our motive in wanting to do what it is that Christ has modeled 
should be done. Okay, back to our dinner conversation. It's going to culminate with Jesus' instruction on love, again, 34 and 35. And the instruction is to love others as I've loved you. Things are about to get really awkward between Jesus and his betrayer, Judas. Pick it up in verse 21. We'll read 21 and 22. Pick it up in 21. Now, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified. If you mark or highlight in your Bible, underline that word testified. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. So a moment ago, not only did we see Jesus set the example of love in action, but here he sets the example of love in witness. In witness. It's important for us to pay attention to this, church. He set the example of love in action. That's servant leadership. Now he's setting the example of love in witness. And so I would say this. To love like Jesus is to speak the truth. To love like Jesus is to speak the truth. The reason I had you underline that word testified in verse 21 is because it means to bear witness. Jesus communicated what he knew to be true regardless of whether or not it was difficult to hear. I'm going to say that again. Jesus communicated what he knew to be true regardless of whether or not it was difficult to hear. So two thoughts about what it means to show the love of Christ by speaking the truth. The first is this. Truth belongs to God. It isn't yours or mine to decide. Truth belongs to God. It isn't yours or mine to decide. And so I would say it is unloving to lie about what God has called true. And it is unloving to change or ignore what God has made clear. It's unloving to lie about what God has called true. And it is unloving to change or ignore what God has made clear. And I'll give you a couple of cultural examples that are terribly unpopular today. Because we're a people of the book and we believe in the inerrancy and infallibility of God's word, did you know that the clear biblical teaching on marriage is that it is a covenant relationship between one man and one woman for all of life? It's a clear biblical teaching. Terribly unpopular today. The clear biblical teaching for God's gift of human sexuality is two distinct genders, male and female. And despite an individual's confusion or a culture's uh, a chaos and collaborative effort to try to cause confusion around those subjects, God has made it clear. And it is not loving to call something a lie that God says is true. And it is not loving to change or ignore something that God has made clear. Truth belongs to God. It isn't yours or mine to decide. Here's the second thing that I want to draw your attention to about showing the love of Christ by speaking the truth. Speaking the truth shouldn't be mean, unkind, or hateful. Now again, let's don't amen the first one and not the second. Speaking the truth shouldn't be mean, unkind, or hateful. Now notice this dinner table dialogue. Jesus spoke the truth. Judas is sitting just a couple of seats away. And Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And he's the only one at supper who knows what's, what's about to go down. So the other 11, besides Judas, plus the women who were there in addition to that, they didn't know. Is he talking about me? 
Jesus was willing to speak the truth regardless of how difficult it was to hear. But he wasn't angry as he brought it up. He wasn't rude. He wasn't mean-spirited. He was simply honest and kind and spoke with grace. But he wasn't willing to compromise what he declared to be true. I always want to encourage us as a people that when we're seeking to engage others with truth, that we follow the model of Jesus. In John chapter 1, the disciple writes and describes Jesus in the perfect summary form. John 1.14, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, you with me? In Jesus, he was the perfect embodiment of grace and truth, never compromising what is true, but always engaging with a heart of grace. That's what it means for us to do the same. And so I would say this. Yes, God's word has clear and specific instruction and teaching on things that we must hold and say as truth. But it is not a stick to beat people with. It is a staff to guide them and a means to rescue them if they find themselves far from God. So here's an example in my own life. A few years ago in East Texas, we had a building project underway. And at one portion of the building project, we had an issue with our contractor. It was a uh, an issue regarding the electrical work, and the contract had been bid one specific way with regard to the electrical installation, and it was being installed a much less expensive way than it had been bid. And my job, um, one of my responsibilities at the church was to oversee and steward our church resources because in my business background, it was just a more natural fit for me able to be able to step into that space. And so when that issue was discovered, and, and, and we realized that it felt like... Uh, we weren't being treated fairly and what was agreed upon was not what was being provided. Um, I was committed that I was fixing to step into that meeting and I was fixing to blow some stuff up. And so I was going to step in and I had this whole posture and, and readiness uh, to, to be able to call out what I thought was clearly wrong. And a friend of mine who was an elder in our church uh, knew that we were having a big meeting that night. And that morning in his time with the Lord, he found himself in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1, which says, if anyone is caught in transgression, then you who are spiritual should restore them. And knowing about the meeting that was coming that night, he called me and said, here's what God showed to me that day. And very clearly, God spoke to me through my friend Jason and said, hey man, this conversation needs to be redemptive, not ruining and so maybe you ought to think through your tone. Call out what you need to call out, but do it in a way that is full of grace and truth. And I think that's something that perhaps all of us can learn a little from. Because what does Jesus do? What is the context in which this is done? Then he says, people are going to know that you belong to me based on how you love them. Right? That's the evidence. That's the marker. And it comes on the heels of Jesus having washed their feet and exercised servant leadership and having spoken the truth, regardless of how awkward it might have been. And, and then Jesus says, this is how people, all people are going to know that based on how I have loved you, you have that kind of love for one another. And so I think my challenge for you this morning is this. Some of you have fractured relationships in your family, the one another in your life where there's friction and, and it's fractured is in your own home. It's in your family of origin. It's with an 
in-law. And, and so God is speaking maybe to you today and telling you that the evidence of, of your belonging to him is not all the things that you do for him, but the way in which you love others in his name. And, and, there, and there's an issue there. Maybe it's with a coworker, a boss, an employee, a neighbor, a classmate, a teacher at school. Maybe there's just some friction there and God is bringing that to your attention. It's not that you don't belong to him, it's just that right now it's hard for others to see you, that you belong to him based on how you are refusing to show his love for one another. Maybe some of you are here today and you've been guilty of talking a lot about people but not talking much to them. Maybe you've been guilty of some of that behavior online Maybe today you're aware that God is calling you to try to love one another, even though they feel like they're really unlovely at times. That's where the gospel takes over. But God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. And so I think the question I always want to ask you in this series is what are you going to do with Jesus? And most specifically, his calling to love others as he has loved you. I'll just read it to you by way of reminder again. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus said this immediately on the heels of washing feet and speaking truth. So maybe there needs to be a little more foot washing in your life and in mine or a little more truth-telling that's saturated in grace. But I'm under conviction. God has spoken to me this week. It's why I'm passionately sharing it with you. I, I want to be evidenced, not by the things I do for God, but the way I love like God. Like I, I, I would love for that to be the description that people have of our church. It's not that, man, they have great worship and they have great programming for children and for students and a great way for adults to connect. That, that's all good and right and yes and amen. But I would wish that people would say about Prestonwood, man, that's a church that is full of love. That's just a, a, those are a people that love. Not perfectly because we're imperfect people. That's the reason why Jesus came. But that we would love others as he has loved us. And when we mess up, we would ask for forgiveness. And we would try to love better the next time. And so I think there are some of you who are here today and this whole idea of love needs to begin with that John 3.16. You need to recognize that God's love for you is that Jesus has provided a life you couldn't live, a death that you deserve, and a resurrection that gets you back in right relationship with him. And there are some of you who are here today, you've been coming for a little while now, and you still have not given your life to Jesus Christ. What are you waiting on? He loves you. If you heard nothing else, Jesus loves you. We've been singing it since we were kids, and it is just as true today as it ever has been. He loves you. And so you need to give your life to Jesus Christ. You need to surrender, confess your sin, ask God to save you, and recognize that it's the love of Christ that evidences he 
wants to do just that. Maybe others of you, you're under conviction this morning. There's a relationship that needs to be restored. You want to have somebody pray with you or for you, just come forward. Our staff would love uh, to do that. Maybe you want to join Prestonwood and call this place your church home. We would love to have a conversation with you about that. But we are going to enter into a time of invitation, and this is a response for worship, right? And so I'm going to invite all of you, based on what God is saying to you, to respond and how he is leading you. Let's pray together to him. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for who you are and all that you've done. Father, I pray as we enter into this time of invitation and worship response that we would be a people who are obedient to what it is that you have called us to do. God, thank you that Jesus models love so that we might live in light of that. Forgive our failure. Cause us to be more like Christ. We love you. Thank you for first loving us. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>